Hi, everyone. Welcome to Voices of Western, the Humans of Western podcast. This is where we delve into everyday stories of students, staff, and faculty on campus. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at humans underscore Western. You can also find us on TikTok, YouTube, and our Facebook page, Humans of Western. My name is Zainab. And I'm Kevin. Today's episode features Wes Kinghorn, a professional squirrel caretaker and Harry Potter election campaigner. But more on that later in the episode. Outside of saving animals and exposing the magic world to muggles, Dr. Kinghorn is the founder of a 3D digital imaging company based in London. He holds a PhD in urban geography from Western and is a postdoctoral scholar in public history. Outside of that, he makes the time to give back to the community from leading workout workshops to being the president of the Urban League of London. We were delighted to be joined by Professor West for this episode. We hope you enjoy all the fascinating topics discussed. We got to hear about Elliot the Squirrel. What's happening here? (laughs) Well, Elliot the Squirrel is an interesting story. So um, one of those uh, kind of fun pandemic stories if they exist, I guess. But uh, early on, uh, it was probably about two weeks into when all of this started. And it was still at a time actually that we didn't think this was gonna take very long. We, we were still uh, thinking this might be a month or two months, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, the local kids, um, I in my neighborhood am sort of known as the guy, if there's an injured animal, you can bring it to me. I've always had a, an affinity for, for urban animals. And uh, so people bring them to me, but what I usually do is I bring them to a great place like Salt Haven who can do rehabilitation of the animal and release them in the wild. I think that's always for the best, right? Uh, if they lose a parent, best thing we can do is get them ready and release them to the wild. Well, these two little squirrels or this one little squirrel at the time was given to me and he was, um, he, he clearly had been kicked out of the nest um, and he was dehydrated and hadn't eaten in a while and he crawled right up to me when when the kids set him down mm-hmm. and you could just tell he was desperate right so when i called salt haven at the time they just they were in the pandemic too so they had no volunteers that could come in it was a really strange time and there was just no one who could take them and they had no options for me there was no one anywhere in the province who could take this little squirrel so uh, i took elliot in and uh went online googled and learned how to make squirrel formula uh it, it was he was that young he was still drinking formula from his mom at the time that that uh, he, he lost her. And uh, I was, I had to learn how to feed a baby squirrel formula for, for months uh, during, luckily it was a pandemic because I could every two hours feed this little squirrel and we became very, very attached, but uh, I didn't want a pet squirrel. <laughs> so uh, my whole, my whole mission was to get this guy re-released into the wild. His name was Elliot, a good friend of mine, uh, Jenner, uh, a big Disney fan. And we were talking about Pete's dragon, that movie and the dragon in that uh, movie is called Elliot. And we thought, ah, he's a really brave little guy. Let's call him Elliot. That's a good name for him. So his name's Elliot. And, um, the idea was to release him to the wild. So for months, uh, as he grew older, um, I had to learn what he was supposed to eat at each stage, feed him the right foods. But then more importantly, I had to go out and sit. I sat under our front tree with my laptop computer and worked on my laptop while Elliot learned to climb trees. Uh, And I'll still remember the first night uh, Elliot ever decided, and he decided this on his own, that he wanted to sleep outside. He climbed to the very, very top of the tree and he he hunkered down into a few little branches and night was falling. And usually I would go, Elliot, and he would come back down, jump on my shoulder and we'd go in the house. Uh, This night, he just did not want to come down. So... uh, I'm a little pathetic this way, but I got a sleeping bag out and (laughs) slept on the front porch all night just to make sure he was okay. And the next morning he was hopping on my chest and it was about a week later, he just decided he was wild and and off he went. But he still comes and visits me every single day. It's probably about 
almost 700 days since I met him and uh, he comes wow. and visits me every single day. Yeah. In fact, he was just here about half an hour before uh, this interview. No, so, that's yeah. so cute. That's adorable. <laughs> okay. Now that we heard about Elliot, um, we want to hear more about you as Dr. Wes. Uh, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Wes Kinghorn. Uh, I am an assistant professor in geography uh, here at Western. Um, I've taught a number of different courses, some social justice type courses. Uh, I taught uh, World Cities uh, last term. Uh, my mainstay, though, is the geography of tourism. Uh, I, I love that study. I, I look at, uh, I know we're going to talk about this more uh, later in the interview, but I love looking at the world from the sense of, of place and place making, uh, spaces versus places. And it's a really interesting way to look at tourism. So that's the uh, the tact I take. But, you know, in, in my life, I, uh, I, I also um, am very involved in heritage preservation. Uh, I have a postdoctoral, uh, I've done postdoctoral work with the public history program uh, and uh, held positions such as the chair of the Urban League. I'm currently the president of the Architectural Conservancy of Ontario London branch. Uh, I was the uh, chair of the London Advisory Committee on Heritage. So I, I look at um, heritage from that placemaking perspective as well. So that's me in a nutshell. Wow, you, one thing that definitely stands out about you is how involved you are and um, it's it just so, uh, I can tell that you really care about all the different things you do. So I guess um, if we were to dive straight into this idea of placemaking, could you explain to our viewers what placemaking is, how you sure. get interested in it and um, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and actually, that's a good way to ask it is how I became interested in it, because um, I did my graduate degree and my and my master's degree at Western many years ago um, and uh, and and was looking at urban geography. And I, I was involved in technology um, and uh, went off and have uh, had a company for many years that uh, looked at uh, three dimensional dim digital imaging of places, working with planners and architects and, and looked at it from uh, the industry side for many, many years. Um, and uh, I became interested in place though, because I moved into a little downtown neighborhood called Woodfield. And Woodfield, uh, at the time I moved into it, was London's first and only, at the time, heritage conservation district. I didn't know that when we bought our house here. It was just a really cool old neighborhood, and I really liked the old houses, the beautiful old architecture. So, um, but I became the chair of that neighborhood association, more just because I like to get involved and, and uh, I like to improve where I live and, and improve the, of course, place I live. And I started to get interested in how people connected to our neighborhood a little differently than they do to some other types of neighborhoods, how they felt very personally attached, not only to the, the architecture, which is beautiful down here, um, and of all scales and sizes, and it's just a really cool place to live. But there was, by extension, a, a very... Uh, unique and diverse group of people who moved into this area for the same reason. So I was really curious about why living in a heritage district impacted people and how it impacted people living in these historic old houses. And, um, and, and that got me interested in a, in a concept, a geographic concept of place, which is uh, the idea that, that, that a space is an anonymous uh, space to you. It might be a park you've never been to. It might be, um, uh, you know, a city you've never visited. If you don't know much about it, if you have no connection to it, it's just a space. It becomes a place when it has meaning to you. So spaces become places as they have meaning. And there's lots of different ways that we uh, that we 
derive meaning from places. So uh, one of the ways is we, we attach to the people and to the physical setting. And, and those are two important elements of placemaking. Um, you need to have a physical environment that attracts people to it. And then you need to have the, the community that builds around that physical environment so that you become sort of simultaneously attached both to the physical and the community aspects of this space. And it becomes a place to you. One simple way to think of it would be uh, if you were dropped into an anonymous park. Um, and you looked around and, you know, there were trees and benches and things. Well, it really would have no meaning to you. It would just be a space. Uh, it would just, it would be a park. You'd know it was a park, but it would have no meaning to you. But if you then uh, moved near that park and you walked your dog at that park and you met your friends and had picnics in that park, every time you interacted with that park and people in that park, it becomes more meaningful to you. And eventually it becomes a place. It becomes a place in your world and it, and it has meaning. And when spaces become places, we become very interested in them. We start to love them and want to protect them. We love both the, the structure and the, and the community, and we become very engaged and involved in it. And it's a good way to preserve heritage districts. It's also a key, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, in a couple of minutes, as to how tourism works. Uh, you know, Paris is just an anonymous place to you until you've read about it in a book and the book meant something to you, or perhaps your parents went there when you were, they were younger and they've always told you about it. But somehow you start to connect at a distance to a space and it becomes a place to you and it becomes somewhere you want to visit. So that's how I basically look at the concept of space and place in a nutshell. I love that concept because it actually relates to people like you can recognize um, you know, locations that you see as places versus ones that don't have meaning to you. So it's just so Absolutely. applicable to people. Um, and moving to tourism, as you mentioned, uh, we talked about in the Geo of Tourism class about the changes that, you know, are happening during COVID and then that are maybe expected to happen post COVID. So would you mind telling us more about that? Sure. Um, you know, COVID uh, has, of course, disrupted life everywhere um, and in every way. And we've all uh, adapted astonishingly fast to this. Uh, but one of those areas that probably struggles the most is the is tourism and and there's a good reason for that um, one of the key ways that we tried to stem the flow of covid between different countries and so forth was to reduce our travel and that was a way of kind of slowing down the movement of the virus country to country uh, very controversial at times when we would slow down the movements to certain countries and not others and and this has been a really interesting conversation we've been having throughout covid well one of the sort of obvious impacts of that um, as you know from from the course we talk a great deal about how one of the major reasons that tourism became uh, something for the masses, something for the average person, was because of uh, cheap and available flights uh, that we could, we could for a time fly easily between countries. Um, when that stopped, and it really did largely stop uh, globally, all sorts of uh, places that relied heavily on tourism. Uh, some, I mean, even uh, Canada, Toronto relies heavily in some ways on tourism. Even London and Ontario relies, of course, quite heavily in some ways on tourism. But there are other places in the world that rely almost entirely on tourism. Tourism is really where they make all of their money. And so that just ground to nearly a stop. And uh, the only other uh, comparable time in, in modern history would be the world wars when something similar happened, when all movement on earth uh, for, for pleasure really did grind to a halt. So um, what happened and yet we, we basically went down. And some interesting things started to happen that we talk about in the course as well. An old concept that came up during one of the biggest recessions of the staycation, the idea of vacationing where you live, suddenly became very important to us again. It was, we had local hotels and local restaurants and local uh, attractions that suddenly 
stopped looking outward for clients because they just weren't there and started looking inward and thinking, well, how can we appeal to, say, the next city over or a few cities over or our own people who live right here in London, Ontario? So um, COVID had that impact of completely restructuring for a couple of years the entire idea of tourism. And, uh, and in many ways, it ground to a halt. And in other ways, people got very, very creative and started to, to look inward and find new ways to revive the concept of the staycation. Right. I, I definitely had, uh, like I was talking to Zena before we started this and uh, I was trying to think of the staycation and how it applied to like friends and family around me. And I think that is um, something I witnessed as well. It was, it seems like it kind of just, people needed to get out. And I guess one other thing, I recently tried to get a hold of a travel agent and mm -hmm. super hard right now, there's a lot of demand um, for traveling. Yes. So people are kind of expecting this travel boom to kind of happen. So based on your expertise, like what are your thoughts on how we move forward from, um, I guess we're not fully past the COVID era, but what's going to happen moving forward? So it's, a, it's an extremely complicated and it's a really excellent question because um, if we were to look at the past indicators like World War II, World War I, where there was a complete halt to, uh, to tourism for a time and then it came back, historically what happens, and it's true this time too, is that there is this pent up demand two years now of people wanting to go places, remembering the beach they were on, remembering even uh, traveling for family, traveling to see relatives they haven't seen in years and years. Um, but on top of that, pure tourism, just wanting to go somewhere for fun, right? Because we haven't done that in so long. Uh, we haven't even been able to, to have as much fun as we'd like in our own communities and certainly not those memories we might have. And, and the younger generation have never had a shot at it, right? Just as they were coming of an age where they could tour, it shut down. So what happened in our past examples is there was this massive pent up exam a demand that results in a boom of tourism um, and my anticipation all along was that that would be what we're in for and I do believe that is what's coming we'll have a real boom in tourism coming down the road what complicates it is that pandemics, unlike, say, uh, a, a war which ends and then we, we start to move on and rebuild from it, what happens in a pandemic is there is a linger to some of the feelings that we've had. Uh, an example being, um, are we comfortable anymore being so close to people on an airplane? Mm -hmm. That's a big unknown question at the moment. There seems to be indications that demand is starting to really fly now that it's available, but there will be a contingent of society who just don't feel comfortable anymore with that idea. So they, they may take some time to get back into society. The idea of masking in Ontario, we're talking about the masks coming off right now. When the masks come off, are people going to be hesitant to go out? Are there those who have become so accustomed to living in a world where a mask is part of your safety net, when they lose that safety net, how comfortable will they be to move into environments like concert venues, uh, large type airports, um, all the things that are so closely uh, sports venues, right? Massive sports venues, soccer games. Where are, are how comfortable are people are going to be? So there may be a time where that initial demand that we expect is tempered somewhat by a difference in how people, um, how comfortable people are moving back into the world of tourism. Uh, certainly there will be a boom and certainly it will come. Will it come in a massive wave like we've seen in, in past uh, times when, when tourism has stopped? 
maybe, uh, will it come in more of a slow building wave? Uh, and maybe that's what we're going to see. So it's a good question. I wish I could tell you the answer. I don't think anyone knows the answer, uh, but it will be fascinating to look at. And for students of tourism, it will be a, a wonderful time to sort of look at how tourism rebuilds and, and what we build toward now. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting question. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Even with uh, staycations that you mentioned earlier, I feel like people now look at their own, you know, like just like Toronto, I live in Burlington. And as for a vacation, people just went to like hotels in Toronto just to, um, you know, as a vacation. And now they see it differently. They see Toronto as a place of more fun than they used to. They were more inclined to go, you know, out of Ontario, out of Canada. And now it's like, um, I guess it's just more attractive to them than before. It's a really good point. Uh, the la when we had the major recession that led to the concept of the staycation initially, um, it opened up a somewhat new area of tourism and it never, the door never closed. So you are right. I mean, when you look at the sort of arc of tourism pre-flight, most vacations were somewhat like staycations. You really couldn't go that far from your house. Train travel expanded that quite dramatically, boat travel, but that wasn't really available to that many citizens. The car massively opened it up, but you could only get so far in a day in a car, right? So the uh, tourism was much more quote unquote local uh, in, the, in the early days. Then air travel sort of took off this idea of traveling to distant places and very different cultures and expanding your knowledge of the world. Um, but when that uh, ebb when the when the recession took hold and, and finances for for people started to shrink and they looked inward again they they reimagined the idea of touring close to home and you're exactly right i think we're going to see a little of that happen again i don't think local tourism will entirely disappear in favor of distant tourism i think there'll be some kind of a blend of that just like we saw after the recessions where yes tourism to other places will take off again but it's already ignited this idea of looking at your local market for tourism and trying to uh, to work with that as well. And I agree with you. I don't think that's going anywhere. I think that's going to be here to stay once again. Yeah, that's, that's a that's me thinking about um, as the evolution of transportation has kind of uh, made traveling a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. The next stage, like I, I was going to make a joke about interplanetary tourism, but even before that. I, I know there's a bunch of companies that are looking into um, flights that kind of go on the edge of the uh, of the atmosphere. Sure. Yeah. Um, so if if that becomes more feasible, a lot more uh, affordable, what kind of things do you see like happening with that accessibility uh, increasing? You're 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 really uh, looking into the future of travel, and and certainly not in my lifetime that will there be travel to other planets or anything like that. But you're you're definitely touching on what there will be increasingly is. Uh, tourism that takes you to the outer skirts of our earth, right? It takes you to the outer atmosphere. And um, just like air travel, when air travel first was invented, of course, the, the average citizen wasn't uh, getting into an airplane. That took a long time before we became, we, we got it to a level that it was uh, feasible to commercially fly almost anyone on an airplane who had enough money uh, to, to get on, but it, you didn't have to be rich anymore to do it. Well, we're in a similar uh, phase with, with that sort of tourism, with what we're calling quote unquote space tourism, right? And again, don't, don't get me wrong, we're, we're not like to see trips to Mars in, in my lifetime, but uh, you never know, you never know, things change very quickly. Um, but uh, but likely we will see more and more, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll 
the tourism to the outer atmosphere will become more efficient, uh, will become better at it, and uh, more and more competitors will enter that game. So it may never become like air travel because you're really not going anywhere. The experience is to get to the edge of, of, the, uh, of the atmosphere, and that alone is the trip. But I certainly think you will see more and more people who are not necessarily the ultra-rich taking those sorts of journeys. So it's certainly a vanguard of, of where tourism is going to go in the future. And after, after I'm gone, who knows where they'll be going, right? So. <laughs> no, Kevin is just super interested in anything space. So that's sure. all for <laughs> tourism connected to space as well. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but I've heard that obviously in the class, you talk a lot about New Orleans as your kind yeah. of favorite place to travel and stuff. Um, what are some places that you think are rich in that kind of sense of place? There are so many, uh, it, it's almost countless. I mean, uh, everywhere has its own sense of place. But since you bring up New Orleans, that, that's a really good uh, good one to use as a bit of an example. It is my favorite city on earth. Um, it's, uh, it's such a unique place uh, in North America. Um, there are very European elements to it. It was uh, Spanish at one time and French at one time. And, and there's a Canadian influence, uh, the Cajuns, the Acadians who, who moved up. Uh, there's all sorts of influences from all over the world on on uh, New Orleans, and its uh, its history dates back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, as a, as the metropolis it sort of became. Um, but because of that, it slowly grew. And when we talk about sense of place, I mean, New Orleans is the kind of place that has everything. It's got everything you're looking for. It's got a, a, a very unique um, music scene, jazz scene that we all know, but also many other things, Zydeco, which is a sort of uh, country uh, hinterland uh, musical style. They also get into world beats, rock. Um, everything takes place in New Orleans because people from all over the world flock to it. And it's a they, there's a food in, in New Orleans called gumbo. And gumbo is basically you throw everything in a pot and let it boil together. And that's and and the city of New Orleans is a gumbo because there are so many cultures. Um, jazz came of course uh, from the the black community and the black experience, but it also came from uh, First Nations experience uh, in in. In, in, which people don't always know, but there are there are influences as well that that created this thing called jazz that is so American now, right? And uh, and there are of course the, uh, the 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 musical stylings of like the French Acadians who came in and brought in this idea of zydeco, and there is food everywhere. I mean, you've got uh, seafood because you're on the coast, and you've got um, very very uh, modest foods because there was such a, a a big working class there. So po' boy sandwiches they call. Them, which are these sandwiches that are just basically like a submarine, but they'll put fried uh, seafood into them, right? So everything about New Orleans is a very, very unique thing to that city. So it's one of the, it's got one of the strongest sense of places of anywhere I've seen on earth. Um, but there are many, many places like that on earth. Really, uh, when you start to think about sense of place, the places that win in the tourism game are the places like New Orleans that build that beautiful history and uniqueness in music, in culture, in people. Often the blend of people is really important too. Having different influences from different parts of the world that came together and fused, that makes a really unique place, right? Because that fusion, you may find the individual elements and in cultures all over the world, but the fusion of the cultures is what makes it really interesting. So these big metropolises often are known for that. Manhattan is of course a big one as well as another American example, but we talk a lot about Paris. Paris was one of the earliest ones uh, that you see that happening in as well. They're all over the world. That's so nice. It oh, definitely made me want to visit the place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of things uh, like jazz being influenced by the native people. I've never heard of that. That's very, very interesting. 
Yeah, there were uh, originally, um, it, it's a, a complicated story. Jazz is a much disputed musical type. New Orleans calls itself the jazz, uh, the, the place that jazz was created. And, and, you know, I'm no musical expert, so you'd want to have a musicologist on to talk about <laughs> that. But from my own experience, uh, the, the story is pretty strong, but that is where it came from. And it was, again, this, this wow. mixture of different cultures working together uh, to create this unique musical style and, and, and influence the musical style from different directions. So it's really, really interesting. So that does make me wonder, we talked about this, this uh, tourism boom that's likely to happen, how, I guess we have a lot of like turmoil and tensions uh, around the world between countries. Yes. Uh, what part does tourism play in potentially bringing harmony uh, or more interconnectedness in the world? I think that's a really good question, especially with what's going on in Europe right now. And, um, and uh, we're in uh, very uh, troubling times. Uh, and um, a lot of what drives this is our separation as people uh, when we don't uh, get to know each other and we don't feel connected to people in other places it can cause us to see them as caricatures and others right but when we get to know them when we start to uh, connect to them on a deeper level um, that's when we can bridge those differences and tourism is uniquely positioned to allow us because one of the things we get into in our in our course is this concept of the host and the guest, how these are two sides of a coin that create tourism and both sides bring something to that game. Right. Um, tourism doesn't work unless there's a willing host and an interested guest. And so when we look at a place uh, from the host perspective, you're inviting people in and whenever imagine just in your own home. Right. When you invite someone into your home, you're taking a risk. You're you're exposing yourself and, you, and your surroundings to someone you don't know very well. It's such a generous gesture to invite someone into your home. Tourism is the same thing on a much larger scale. When you as a country decide that you want to have tourists come to your country, you're welcoming them, welcoming them as the host. Um, the guest uh, is doing something similar. They're taking a chance to move outside their comfort zone, the place they grew up, the place they know well, into a place where they know they don't fit in right now. So they have to trust that host. They have to have faith that that host will take care of them, protect them, make sure they're okay when they're there, right? So this relationship is intrinsically one of trust and goodwill. Um, now, not always, we get into it in our course that tourism can be a bad force sometimes and can be, can be exploitive and can cause lots and lots of problems. But in its finest moments, tourism is just that. It's a trust relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship of two sides, the host and the guest, working together to cross differences and have an experience that will be a lasting one for both of them if it works well. So the answer is that, yeah, tourism can be a major force in our lives for, for getting to know other people from places that we're not familiar with. And it's very hard when you have spent time with someone to hate them. You know, when you've gotten to know them individually, it's very hard to hate them. And uh, it's a simplistic, perhaps, way to see the world, but I think it's certainly a small part of how we could do better um, as people is to come together as much as we can with as many different types of people as we can and to see the world in, in, in the right way, uh, in non-exploitive ways, but to see the world and to see it through as many different perspectives as we can. And I think there's, there's certainly an argument to be made that the better we do that, the, the less we'll have to deal with, uh, with this anger and hatred. I think there's a pretty strong argument there for that. Wow, what a beautiful message. That's. It's not something I've really thought about, but um, I think the way you laid out, it seems like, as you said, it's hard to hate someone who you know well. And even if you have moments of feeling annoyance or hatred towards that person, 
you understand there's nuance and this is a this is a whole person whereas as you said if you have a character caricature type idea of someone it's very easy to just like see them as one dimensional you said it that's exactly right that's exactly right one dimensional is the right way to look at it it's we only and we that's how it works we only know them on that one dimension what we've been told by others right uh until we actually interact with someone it's like when you you hear a rumor about a person right and then you meet them and you go well that's not right at all this person's not like that at all you you when you can only rely on secondhand information your your picture is very skewed by whoever handed you that information so the best way to overcome that is to to see it for yourself and to experience it yourself yeah i love that um i guess to wrap up now is there any last messages you'd like to say or um anything you'd like to say that to tell the students sure well um the uh I wonder, do we do we need to talk at all about the Harry Potter signs to tell them what that whole thing was about? <laughs> oh yes, yes. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a pretty incredible way to end this off. There we go. Why don't we end it that way? So uh, the reason why did we do that little Harry Potter thing? Well, the the reason right. is, um, you know. Uh, I, I'm a, uh, you know, longtime studier of plays. I've been involved in many different historic uh, things. And, and somehow the two things in my life that actually got any news were my squirrel friend. Uh, little Elliot's actually made the CBC and went Canada-wide. He's probably the most famous squirrel on earth. And he, it's so weird when he comes to my back window every day, I think, wow, you don't, you have a clue how famous you are. And uh, the only other thing I've done in my life that got comparable notice was, again, the silliest thing in, uh, in the world. Um, I, uh, it was an election, federal election. Um, I had uh, um, noticed that, you know, in every federal election, it's one of those, the most divisive times in any country, of course, because rather than living the way we usually do, which is neighbor to neighbor, just having a good time, I'm sure we disagree on stuff, but who cares, right? In elections, you got to take a camp, right? And who are you going to vote for among these different groups? So it's a pretty divisive force in, in culture and society. And uh, and I noticed, you know, the kids kind of suffer from that because they see their parents who love each other most of the time suddenly getting into fights over things that to them seem like nonsense. So I thought, I got to lighten this up. So the weekend before the election, uh, well, little ways before the election, I, I went to Vistaprint. <laughs> And I made these Harry Potter election sites, just a few of them. There was one for Harry Potter and I made different parties for everybody. Uh, there was a, a, he was from the Gryffindor party and they all had taglines and Hermione had a party and, and, uh, and Dumbledore, or sorry, uh, who was it? Uh, Voldemort had a party and, and Remus Lupin had a party. So, I, and I just randomly without telling anybody, woke up a few days before the election, went around my neighbor, uh, my little street and just put the signs up on different people's lawns. So they were all like voting for a certain member of the Harry Potter world. And I think it was just like the squirrel coming at the right time. It was a, a difficult time and, and Elliot represented hope in a really tough time to people. And so he went wild. This was the same thing. I think people woke up and they were tired of the divisiveness. But for some reason, this went global. Uh, it was in major newspapers all over the place. Uh, wow. Places like American <laughs> news networks like Fox covered it. I had like this, um, I had a, a British uh, children's magazine do an article on it. Uh, it just went everywhere and i i gotta tell you though i did a lot of interviews for that and it's very hard to tell that story i'm so happy to tell it now years later but when you're telling the same story and eventually i'm just like it's just four signs <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how much more i can say about this <laughs> anyway there's there's your uh, your final thought for our <laughs> that's so perfect yeah i saw the articles it's like 
signs random like magically appear in london yeah. the titles got me it's so funny yeah <laughs> they were all working with a lot of puns <laughs> you know it's funny um i think what made me i think what made that work so well was that i didn't own up to it in fact in a lot of the interviews especially early on i never even owned up to doing it i just sort of pretended i lived on the street <laughs> so i think the magical no nature of it kind of helped a little bit too you know yeah if you read some of the early articles i'm trying to be cagey i, I eventually gave up <laughs> yeah like it's but, the same person showing up in all these places i think there's might be a connection here yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh, but it was fun. And you know what? If those are the two things I'm known for, a squirrel and some Harry Potter signs, I think uh, I'll call it a good life. <laughs> you do all the hard work, and this is what this is, is what, what I get. This is what you're known for. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for being here. We loved having you. Um, that was really a good conversation. I know. I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure, Dr. West. Um, uh, thank you, and have a great uh, rest of the day. You as well. Very nice talking to you both. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for having me on.